Hello and welcome to the Music Works podcast. I'm Katie Beardsworth, director and founder of Polyphony Arts, and today I'm delighted to welcome Olivia James to the studio. Olivia is a therapist who specialises in performance anxiety and related traumas. She uses her knowledge of the nervous system to treat stage fright, public speaking anxiety and confidence issues. She's helped musicians, actors, professional speakers, executives and entrepreneurs look and sound confident in high-pressure situations. In this episode, Olivia will talk us through the mechanics of performance anxiety and how trauma and the nervous system can interpret certain situations as dangerous. It's a rare performer who hasn't experienced some level of stage fright, so stay with us as Olivia outlines the practical steps you can take to deal with this and when to ask for help. And in a related issue, but one that Music Works has looked at before, we'll also discuss the effects of sexual harassment and bullying in the industry, how victims can freeze or appease, and how these kind of violations are often swept under the carpet. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Music Works is generously supported by Allianz Musical Insurance, the UK's number one musical instrument insurer. Allianz offer a team of music experts who understand musicians' needs and lifestyles, especially helpful during the strange times we're in. You can get cover for all types of instruments and musical equipment with protection against accidental damage, loss, theft and more. And, unlike home insurance, there's no excess to pay on instrument or accessory claims. At the moment, Allianz have a special online offer with two months free cover. Not only that, every Allianz Music policy now includes free legal assistance and support so you can protect yourself both as a musician and in your personal life. Find out more at alliancemusic.co.uk Allianz, serving the music community since 1960, proud to be the insurer of choice for over 70,000 musicians. So, now let's go over to the Music Works studio where Olivia is waiting to speak to us. Welcome, Olivia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you today. So here we have Olivia James, performance specialist. And Olivia treats people for um, performance anxiety and other related things um, on Harley Street and online. Um, Olivia, would you please please tell us a bit about what you do? I'm dying to get stuck in. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yes, I, I deal with performance anxiety in, in, in all sorts of different people, including professional performers. And the, the thing that, that most people have when they have performance anxiety is the, the general advice of just imagine the audience naked or you're no, no, nervous, it's excitement just doesn't work when people have serious performance anxiety and phobias because it's a nervous system thing it isn't just in your mind it's your whole nervous system has decided this situation is dangerous my system needs to go into fight or flight now that is not conducive to, to singing a beautiful aria when you're in freak out mode that is not conducive to like getting the phrasing right on a piece of music um so that's that's what i do with people now like I just want to put it in the room as they say that obviously everything I do with people is totally confidential. So I, I am going to be talking about some case studies and professional performers I've worked with, but I cannot identify them unless they've given me like a testimonials. So I'm not going to identify people by name in the case studies I discussed, but I'm going to talk about real people that I've worked with and some of the stuff that's happened to them, but without really 
identifying them or going into super vulnerable details because mm -hmm. obviously with this work confidentiality is absolutely key so yeah uh, having said that just ask me whatever you'd like to ask me <laughs> thank you um so uh, I'm really interested um, to hear, obviously um, this podcast is aimed at, um, at musicians and people in the music industry, we're all very familiar with the concept of stage fright. Um, something that you just said, do you think there are different levels of, the, of this then? You know, because the thing that you mentioned interestingly about um, turning nerves into excitement, that's actually always a thing that I've, I've found has worked really well, well for me right. in terms of like, you know, a bit on edge let's you know yes, exactly. that and turn it into but obviously exactly. there's another level of this which is, there is serious there anxiety is. Yeah. exactly and for the people for whom that doesn't work they tend to feel even worse because they're like mm. well this is meant to work and yeah. so the thing that i do with people is i i i often have to i'm a trauma therapist as well so sometimes there is a related trauma to this serious like anxiety and stage fright and total hell i mean when you have serious stage fright it's a visceral feeling i've had it myself i'm a professional speaker and there have been times where i've totally lost it and i've gone my god this is awful and it feels like literally you just want to get out of there and you want to run away all thoughts of like your career on how good it might be you don't care you just mm. want to get out so People have that level of phobia and stage fright. It really needs something more than, than a reframe yeah. to get them through it. Um, because what tends to happen if, if the performance anxiety is very overwhelming and people do try and go on, they can go blank and totally lose it. And then that becomes a phobic. It, it can turn it into a phobia, basically, because then they're like, well, this happened last time. I'm My nervous system wants to avoid it. And yeah. so the, the trick there is to really try and find ways to A, find out where that phobia has come from and then B, soothe and regulate the nervous system down so the person can actually do their job. Yeah, absolutely. And what other, um, you know, careers does this typically affect as well as musicians? Well, I mean, I've worked with professional speakers that have suddenly lost it. Uh, one speaker I worked with, uh, who's given me a, a like a public testimonial, um, it, like had done a TEDx talk where a few things have gone wrong. The lights came on really suddenly. There was a squeak. Uh, her mouth went so dry that her like teeth, like she couldn't get the words out. She had to keep stopping and starting. And then after that, she was due to speak at London Excel to like 700 people and lost, basically lost her nerve. And anyway, mm. so we worked together and I fixed her stage fright. And um, <laughs> so, um, you know, so I've worked with professional speakers. I like, I've worked with musicians. I've worked with people who are very, uh, like actors, um, singers. So people who are often used to performing and then sometimes never had a problem like, you know, singing to thousands of people and suddenly, often, uh, crucially, tiredness is often a factor, suddenly mm. go blank. Often people are like traveling, so they're in a different, like a different hotel, they're tired. A few things go wrong last minute often. So like we had a, a little delay today, like a few little things might go wrong, a tech thing might go wrong and the organizer might say a snarky comment and then mm. suddenly, 
they go blank and they think well hang on a minute I'm this is my thing I'm really good at this I've gone blank and then what starts to happen is avoidance becomes the coping strategy for most people so they all try and like present with a co-presenter or they all say that they can't do it or they you know so then what happens is avoidance becomes the thing so that and then which basically it harms their career because they can't do their thing um and i think often these people have tried just pull themselves together they have tried getting a grip mm. they have you know tried imagining the audience naked and all the other kind of like advice that that's given and it, it doesn't work so that's when they they need somebody who 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 specializes in in the nervous system part of it and the psychology part of stage fright so so what's happening in the brain in the brains or the the nervous systems of people when this happens so you know you get on stage and you're ready to do the thing that you're totally used to doing and then it it doesn't happen (laughs) yes exactly so what happens is somewhere lower down in the nervous system so you've got yeah, your prefrontal cortex you've got your limbic brain you've got then you've got your brain stem which is like the more primitive part somewhere a little bit lower down by a process called neuroception your nervous system has decided that this situation is dangerous that you're in physical danger and it warrants you getting into fight flight mode or freeze so when you start getting into fight flight mode your body starts to get ready to mobilize. So it starts, it gets ready to punch somebody or to run away. Now, in order for that to happen, a lot of the blood will go to your vital organs in your heart, uh, your lungs, in case you're getting attacked or you have to run, which means a lot of the blood leaves this, your prefrontal cortex, which is kind of your logical part that's to do with like knowing how, you know, with, with like you're performing. And so suddenly that part of your brain can go offline completely and this is when people go blank they they go into freak out mode you know you don't want sweaty hands when you're trying to play you don't want a shaky voice you don't want to lose your place in an aria you know all these things can happen so this is what happens so the nervous system goes into fight flight or even freeze when if you freeze you've had it because then you just go completely blank and it's really not fun so that's what happens somewhere the nervous system decides by this process and of course you're not actually in physical danger but the nervous system has decided that you're in physical danger so i'm just wondering coming so i've got um i'm really keen that um people listening to this who who might experience performance anxiety or stage fright and have tried the whole picturing people naked thing are aware of the fact that this is something that can be taken more seriously than by suggesting things like that and and, um can be helped so um can you give us a a sense of how you would help someone who's dealing with something like that obviously i appreciate that's probably a big question yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) um so the first thing that I do is I kind of have to look under the bonnet or the hood, as the Americans would say a little bit, and like assess the person's trauma history. And now I honestly, I, there's no way that I'm going to go rummaging around in somebody's childhood if, if, if it's not necessary. But sometimes, so I worked with a, like a, a female actor, a French actress who had had a really bad experience doing a, a play when she was like 15. And ever since then, she'd gone blank on stage, basically. Ever since then, she would only accept parts that had very few lines. 
So with her, it was very easy to find like where did this start, mm. and then so we we treat that sort of trauma of those kinds of things, and sometimes it's not related to performing. It could be like something that happened at school, like somebody laughing at you. Sometimes we we can't really find exactly the the, the original sensitizing event, as we call it. Mm-hmm. But so in that in if, in the cases that we can find the trauma, we treat that trauma by various like psychological physiological techniques and then we teach the person self-regulation techniques that they can use to treat anticipatory anxiety so i often go through like a performance with somebody and say okay let's imagine all the things that could go wrong and now that might sound really really counterproductive but the night before you're trying to go to sleep your brain is thinking right i'm gonna forget this I'm going to lose my instrument. Something's going to happen. So the more you kind of shine a light on that, the better. And then I teach people calming techniques so they can calm themselves before the performance and smooth all those nerves down as much as possible. So I always empower people to like do their own work as well. Mm. So they don't need me forever, basically. Yeah. So essentially um, you have to fix, or fix uh, you have to address the trauma before you can then do the other the other things which might actually work on their own for a less kind of severe yes. um anxiety but actually that yeah for the um for the more severe anxieties you need to go back and find the root cause yeah what you're saying yeah um and this brings me on to um another topic that we that we were planning to talk about which which is where trauma might have come from um within the music industry um if we were talking before the recording started about the uh, about sexual harassment or indeed any kind of harassment within um the music industry and um the ways in which an experience like this can specifically manifest in performance anxiety yeah um could you could you talk a bit about that yes absolutely so so as a as a trauma therapist i'm sort of acutely aware of the layers of trauma that somebody might have and the triggers that somebody might have now the worst kind of trauma in my experience is betrayal trauma where you trusted somebody and they let you down so it could be i listened to your previous podcast it could be like your you know your mentor it could be like a teacher or somebody you trusted like betraying that trust um so then what what can start to happen is that that your nervous system is still on high alert it could even be years later which kind of then leads to your stress levels and your anxiety levels being higher so unresolved trauma is a big thing when it comes to sexual harassment so what often happens is i mean we we've all heard these stories of like people in power staying in power for years there are 20 30 people like in the you know the harvey weinstein cases like the you know kevin spacey was obviously another like prominent one r kelly i mean Mm. these things have gone on for years and on some level looking at how how did was that perpetuated and one reason that perpetuates is often when people are abused they go into like a freeze or a peace state. So even something like a very sexist, like a sexist remark that somebody in authority might make in an orchestra, for example, there's a part of, of, of you, especially where there's a big power difference, 
where you go into a, a survival state called appeasement, which is play nice, which is like laugh it off, make light of it, or not say anything or ignore it. And now this isn't a conscious decision most of the time. This is a natural survival response that we all have. So somebody says something really, or somebody gropes you, you kind of freeze and you think, and you don't say in the moment, what the hell do you think you're doing? How dare you, I'm gonna report you. Often people don't do that, people freeze. Um, so that is a, a big part of like how that trauma response works. So the people like internalize this trauma and we all, we, you know, you hear all these cases like one person comes forward and then 30, 40 people come forward and say, yes, it happened to me too. Mm -hmm. A, either I never told anybody or I did to tell somebody and I wasn't believed or I was attacked or I was then ousted or I lost my position. So this is a really complex issue and uh, the trauma side of it can't be underestimated. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and it feels to me like the appeasement behavior um, must be particularly prevalent in people. So part of the sexual harassment episode that I recorded before that you mentioned um, was talking about how the freelance nature of a lot of music jobs makes it really much more likely that this kind of thing will go on because there are no HR structures or very few, um, you know, grievance procedures. And of course, your own, whether you get booked or not, is uh, is very often in, apparently entirely in the hands of people in power who may have been people who've either who've either, um, you know, committed the abuse or have um, sort of enabled it by ignoring it. Yes, exactly. Um, and so I feel like the appeasement you know this I'm, I'm just expecting that this probably resonates with a lot of our listeners as, as a behavior that um you know we've all done it. so it's almost like making the person feel better about the fact that they've just done something awful is that what it is uh it, it, <laughs> it basically it, it isn't <laughs> it's basically protecting yourself because most yeah. of the time when we do speak out you see the way that that victims and survivors are treated they get it in the neck big yeah. time so I don't know if you saw like so at the time of recording we're 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 in we're in the UK and we've just had two prominent like murders of young women. One of the 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 women that was murdered was murdered by a policeman, uh, a serving officer, and so um, a female officer, a senior officer, was just recently interviewed and said, if. I, as a female officer, report a, report a colleague for sexual harassment. The next time I'm out on a call and I call for help, they don't come and I, I'm at a risk of getting my head kicked in. This mm. is the level of like uh, protection that some abusers have and how the, the, the system is internally, sort of inherently, um, they're inherently geared towards maintaining this toxic culture. Yeah. Uh, and protecting kind of abusers and you know so so and it, of course this doesn't just happen in the music industry it happens in law i've written an article on linkedin about uh appeasement in in like in all sorts of industries like the mm -hmm. the amount of like i know in the creative industries it's you know it's rife 
in the advertising industry, sexual harassment is right, music industry, law, finance, you name it, you know, so mm-hmm. there, um, so one of the things that happens is organizations who don't deal with this properly, uh, we, there's an um, amazing psychologist called Jennifer Bride who came up with this, this notion of this term of organizational betrayal. Mm. You see this in like even like scandals like, you know, child abuse in the Catholic Church. You know, this was a big thing. And somehow the priests would just move to a different parish. You know, children weren't believed. So, and and often, uh, I think we, I mentioned this before we started to record. This is another um, term from Jennifer Bride, which is Darvo. So, Harvey Weinstein is accused by 20 plus women of sexual harassment. His initial response is a classic perpetrator response, which is deny and reverse victim as an offender. So he said, I can't believe how these women would make up these terrible things about me. No one has done more for women than me. So basically he's then twisting it. So he's the victim. And as you know, women of LGBT people in the industry, people of color in the industry, we see this. Mm. We see how other people are treated. And this is part of like what adds to our tension. We see what happens. And this also, you know, informs our uh, the way we 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 navigate all this, uh, and the way we think. Well, we have to sort of make uh, decisions about how we want to handle our career, and so we are placed in a very difficult position often. Yeah, absolutely. Because when you are, or certainly when you feel dependent upon an industry with no real um, reporting structure within it um it does it does yeah. feel impossible it, you feel like you feel like you're on your own and you either have to decide to do stuff that's going to get you work or not do stuff that's gonna, or get exactly to, potentially my, not going to get you work my point mm. is even in organizations that have got a reporting structure yeah often that is incredibly dysfunctional and toxic yeah. uh yeah. so then comes the, the i think part of the the, the the function of this appeasement response is also we try and protect our survival within the system yeah not only our like physical survival and our you know our, 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 our body but also our survival in the system and i think this is why appeasement is very much misunderstood but a huge part of the trauma response mm. is appeasement more likely to be a response that that women um have or no i think it's basically anybody who's in a power in a position of a power differential Mm. so it could be uh uh, my trauma supervisor is uh like a a black uh, american um african-american and she wrote a brilliant um piece about when agreement is not consent so bob marley's granddaughter was leaving an airbnb somewhere in america with some friends and one of the neighbors is a bit of a nosy, busybody, kind of waved. Uh, Bob Marley's granddaughter didn't wave back. Next thing they know, they've called five police cars and they're being questioned about like what the hell they were doing in that street. Were they just robbing this house? They, these are just young black women. Mm. And they basically try and just stay nice and calm and chat and be friendly, laugh with the police. But they knew they were in danger. So appeasement yeah. can be 
it can look like agreement, but it's in fact survival. It's the survival's yeah. response. So yeah. yes, it can happen to or anybody who's who's on some level has less power than uh than the you know like the police like a black person with a policeman like you know a lone singer with a with a director you name it and is it an appeasement is part of the sort of um neurological response yes because i think this is the interesting thing is that as someone who's definitely done appeasement in my past i definitely feel like i take responsibility for that behavior and think that it's part of my inherent inability to stand up for myself as a woman to kind of go oh you know haha this is so funny um and actually what you're saying is it's not always that no it isn't and that's the, that's the thing that i always try and impress on people it isn't even a conscious decision Mm. It's just a, like literally your nervous system takes over. Uh, this is going to sound really triggering for some people, but it's the same like when somebody's like experiencing a sexual assault or a rape, your body freezes. And then later people say, well, why didn't you fight back? Why didn't mm. you say, well, your body's gone into freeze. Your body's gone into, I'm going to survive this, you know? Mm. So, and it's the same with appeasement. It's, it's like a different level of that. So it's, your body's trying to, you know, you're, because we, we've seen what happens if we, if we like challenge people. So then the, the next sort of trick for people is to start using their power a little bit more and try and in those moments when we, when we can do something or say something, sort of train ourselves. And it can even start with if somebody makes a slightly off color joke, you can just say, you can call them out on it. Um, you know, so we, you can start to sort of work with that, but just understand that appeasement is a survival response and it isn't conscious. So it's a bit like a possible thing you can do about it is when you're not in a state of of uncontrollable response yes. to start doing things, but not exactly. to beat yourself up about the things that you did when you couldn't, exactly. couldn't help it. And it's like very technical language here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so later on, often we'll, we'll, you know, when we're away and we're safe, We'll think, oh my god, I, I know exactly what I sh should have said to that guy. And yeah. then you call your friends and you go, oh my god, you won't believe what this jerk said to me today. And I wish I'd said this, but in the moment you don't, because you've mm. gone into like that appeasement. I'd be really curious to know if there's anyone who hasn't experienced that at some point in some context. Exactly, that's really interesting. And to come back to um to stage fright and performance anxiety, then, um. We spoke a while ago, I think, about the fact that this, this having gone through an experience like this, possibly directly linked to the work you do as a performer, can, does this have a sort of traceable impact on performance anxiety or stage fright? Uh, yes, it can, because it, it, it can... If it's not dealt with, it, like that, it's like a residual trauma in the body. It's a residual anxiety in the body, a residual I'm not safe feeling. So the the nervous system is very complex. So there's a big nerve called the vagus nerve, which is it's got three parts. So the kind of oldest, more most primitive part is that sort of reptilian part that that's like freeze and retreat. It's like a you're like a like a crocodile in the mud. You're like frozen and cold. <laughs> and then there's like the, the the kind of more limbic limbic sort of like 
side of it, which is responsible for the fight, flight, and that responsive side. And then when you're like now, I feel really safe. I love talking to you. So I'm in uh, social engagement. So it's like I feel pretty groovy. I feel open. I, you know, my it's called ventral vagal. So in that state, you can do your best work as a performer. So as a performer, in your sort of optimal flow state. Yes, you want to feel safe. Depending on what you're doing, you might need a little bit of activation. So if, if you're like performing in Hamilton, for example, you need to be really kind of agile and moving and you need to move and you need to like respond to your, you know, your fellow performers. So the idea is that, that you need to really have a level of safety. And if you've had a lot of trauma, that can be a lot harder to achieve. And of course, then that links to things like perfectionism. So like I worked with a, a clarinetist and very, very perfectionistic because obviously as classical musicians, we, we, we like, we, we get praised for doing well, but if we make a mistake, we feel like it's the end of the world. And of course that can lead to tension. So when you are really in flow and like performing a beautiful solo piece, you sort of need to feel safe and in flow. You don't want to be thinking, fuck, I'm going to, I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going to make a mistake. And that's yeah. what tends to happen when people have had a lot of trauma from like perfectionist teachers, as well as additional like trauma in their personal lives and in their professional lives, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. There's an awful lot to um, perfectionism, like the balance between... Um perfectionism and or um and and sort of quality and like mental health and the other things that you need exactly to, and then yeah. add to that the pandemic why don't you <laughs> yeah just a little small little thing like the pandemic which is obviously for professional performance has been an absolute nightmare yeah. and i know many have had to you know do whatever they they could do like to to, to survive basically put food on the table so this has been a collective trauma professional performance it's been absolutely you know uh, like really 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 tough and then now we're getting into that state where like venues are opening up again like so how do you navigate like getting back out there kind of networking performing and like if you have got fears about covid like what's it going to be like going into a venue and like performing and like, you know, with a big audience and nobody's wearing a mask. Like for some people that's going to be really, really triggering. Yeah. And we shouldn't absolutely. underestimate it. No. And I think, I think there are a lot of psychological um, and, you know, things that musicians have been through, as you say, the collective trauma. And I, you know, I hear a lot of musicians making jokes like, Oh, I don't even know if I can remember how to play it. You yes, know, exactly. <laughs> There's a lot underneath that that's not, you know, um, obviously I know that they all can remember how to play it, but there's a real worry, there's a real loss of identity um, or has been over the time when performance hasn't been possible. Um, so, yeah, I'm uh, very aware that there's... Exactly. And I think... going through a lot at the moment. Exactly. So the, the, the kind of identity part of it for musicians is, is of course, huge. Because mm. if I'm working with, like, an investor ba investment banker and they've got stage fright, they can kind of just avoid public speaking. Like, yeah. but a professional performer, that's what they do. They can't avoid performing. Uh, so for many, I think this is this has been really, really tough. Um, yeah. When it, it comes to like 
just even putting food on the table and then some of the you know oh you could just retrain as a computer technician or whatever you know that that <laughs> there's been some unhelpful messaging <laughs> yeah now they can all become lorry drivers <laughs> yeah well indeed <laughs> um and can I just ask as well, I'm just thinking about this from the perspective of the people who never even go into the profession because of stage fright or performance anxiety. Is there anything, um, because, you know, I'm guessing that the people who come to you are people for whom this is a professional issue and therefore are able to kind of commit and invest in, um, you know, resolving it. But there are people who, um, there's you know, there's musical talent out there that never sees the, the, a public stage because it can, because you know these issues perhaps are not a priority for them to resolve and they just would rather just avoid it altogether. Is there any sort of like piece of advice or yeah, any thoughts you can give absolutely. on that? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's um, it's there's so much joy in like playing, and and it's uh, like. There, there's obviously a huge amount of like shaming as well like if you're a talented musician people say well you're depriving of the world of your like talent so there comes this like internal shame part as well yeah which is horrible um but like being a professional musician is really tough and then some of them are of course like struggling with substance issues um like someone i know is a, an amazing um clarinetist who's talked publicly about like being an out what was an alcoholic and is so talented and like brings so much joy but it nearly all went you know down the pan so um you've just gotta it's really tough because everybody's really tough on themselves so you just have to be a little bit gentle with yourself and have some self-compassion and like think okay like you know i i my anxiety got the better of me and that's kind of okay um and for most people there is even very very phobic and anxious people can can be usually be helped relatively quickly and then then basically what happens is then is people have the choice so mm. the fear isn't regulating what they do they have more freedom so then if they want to go back to being a musician you know they, they have more chance you know it's um so so that's really uh that's the the, the biggest thing it's like that, that feeling of self-compassion try and get somebody to help you and then see what you want to do then you, you know you can decide what you want to do instead of being like boxed in a corner by your fear and your anxiety yeah absolutely thank you that's great um is there anything else you would like to talk about or share um so i think one of the things about the the kind of the, the people don't understand about like being a musician is like the the kind of the politics the all the other practical stuff i know that that your podcast really focuses on that it's like there's so much else and that can be incredibly overwhelming so it's like uh a lot of my my colleagues and friends are professional speakers and they're like well i can be the show pony but then if i also have to promote myself and do all that other stuff what can happen is we can uh, i've done a piece of, on this uh, with a journalist we can like get this like professional jealousy and it can either drive us 
it can either fuel us or it can like totally take the wind of our sails and we come like bitter and resentful and go oh bloody hell such and such got there i'm better than them but so yeah. then we get this really weird mix of like insecurity and grandiosity that mm. can, that that can start to happen sort of like psychologically so definitely like watch out for that because they nobody likes a grumpy old morose you know i could have been a contender kind of person <laughs> i think the other thing is you have to be easy to work with i i know a lot of actors and the the best ones people like them because they they're nice to be with because you know you're especially when you're like in a in a company or doing a movie or you're in an industry you have to get on with people you know that is you have to spend time with these people you might have to travel with them like be so the more you can like work on your own anxiety your trauma the kind of the more chill you can be basically and that, that comes back to that that vagus nerve thing um probably the final thing i want to mention is uh imposter syndrome and that um i just did a, a thing for metro on um imposter syndrome a couple of days ago and so what, what can start to happen when we get super, super stressed, our brain can start to spin out of control and it can start to catastrophize. And so we kind of forget that. Is it objectively true that, that, that I don't belong here? Like, is it objectively true that I don't know how to play this piece? Is it objectively true that, you know, um, that, you know, I'm a fraud? And when we get super stressed, our brain isn't we're not as logical as we were so um and then of course we have the, the flip side of that where we get people who just think they're like you know their god-given talent just excuses absolves them from any you know from anything yeah. uh so we we got these like grandiose like leaders and politicians and stuff who should suffer from imposter syndrome <laughs> but don't so um uh, but one one crucial thing that lots of people might not know about imposter syndrome is Pauline Clance who uh, coined the term. Now I wish she'd called it the imposter experience. Uh -huh. So because having calling it a syndrome kind of pathologizes it. And everybody, instead of saying, oh, I just had an imposter moment, it's kind of, it, it makes it less kind of serious. Oh, you mean it makes it sound like you have a permanent syndrome that's always exactly. like you, rather like than a... having like a, oh, I had a little flash of an imposter exactly. and now it's gone. Exactly. It's yeah. I have the syndrome. And the final yeah. thing I want to say about imposter syndrome is that the notion that it affects women more than men, in my practical professional experience, just isn't true. Mm. So, and of course then then comes this like this narrative that oh there is a the reason we don't have as many women like successful and women earn less and all this stuff is because they suffer from imposter syndrome and they just have to be more confident now as we talked about earlier on some of the structures in in organizations just aren't conducive there are fewer barriers for men than for women generally so um Amy Cuddy, a researcher who's, who's done a lot of work on imposter syndrome, also finds that when, whenever she, she writes a piece about imposter syndrome, she gets just as many messages from men as from women saying, yes, I have this. In my own clinic, same thing. I get a lot of men. And it, it, it doesn't really matter what their 
social or educational background is. Even people with PhDs uh, come to me with imposter syndrome. So, uh, but just to let you know that that it's it's a very human thing, and it doesn't mean that 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 it's like a permanent affliction and it's a syndrome and it's a disorder and you can't ever get over it. <laughs> No, I completely agree, and I, I did I do a lot of um, I did a lot of talking about imposter syndrome last year, and then I read an article about why we shouldn't talk about imposter syndrome and panicked that I'd been talking about imposter syndrome, and then I realised that it was okay because what this article was saying was that um, it's by telling people that in order to not to, if they have imposter syndrome they just need to be more confident is kind of a very like whitewashing approach to it some is. kind of deep seated. Um, reasons why you fe- why you might be feeling that way um, exactly. and um, which I was relieved that that wasn't what I've been telling people to do so that's okay <laughs> hopefully um, but I do think um, one of the things that I've no- I agree with you completely that imposter syndrome affects men as much as it affects women and um, and people much more than they admit quite often as well yeah um, but it does feel to me like um, there's yeah when natural barriers are in place then they can become imposter syndrome can become blamed for those whereas exactly. actually it's it's actually an organization a structural a structural or a societal thing rather exactly. than an imposter syndrome thing exactly yes yeah well thank you so much um this has been a really really great episode i've really enjoyed talking to you um i've thought about performance anxiety in relation to my own practice and that of my fellow musicians and clients and um, Olivia, you've given us an amazing insight into the inbuilt programs we are hardwired to run when faced with the demands of live performance and the techniques that we can use to overcome debilitating nerves. But I hadn't thought so much about the link between this issue and the presence of suppressed trauma, which has been a real eye-opener for me, so thank you. And of course, your expert analysis of why anyone faced with sexual harassment or overtly inappropriate conduct might react in ways that may seem incomprehensible has been really helpful and illuminating. So for listeners to find out more about Olivia and her practice, you can go to harleystreetcoach.com and um, check out our other Music Works episodes on anxiety, trauma and dealing with sexism and sexual harassment. They are season one, episode 13, um, season three, episode seven, and season three, episode nine in particular. Um, I'm Katie Beardsworth, and Music Works is brought to you by the team at Polyphony Arts, with thanks to our sponsor, Alliance Musical Insurance. Thanks again, Olivia. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Music Works podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe, check out our other great episodes and even better, leave us a review. You can also sign up to our mailing list at www.polyphonyarts.com forward slash mailing dash list for updates and news about what Polyphony Arts is up to for all you classical music folk out there. You can find more information in the show notes as well. Meanwhile, I'm Katie Beardsworth and I look forward to sharing with you the next great episode of Music Works. Music Works is generously supported by Alliance Musical Insurance, the UK's number one musical instrument insurer. Alliance Music Insurance, serving the music community since 1960, proud to be the insurer of choice for over 70,000 musicians. Music Works is a Polyphony Arts production. Thank you for listening. Thank you.